0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 258, Almost Ungovernable. Last time, we witnessed the sad sight of brother turning against brother. Isaac Angelos was overthrown and blinded on the orders of his older sibling, Alexius. Whether Alexius plotted against his baby brother or reluctantly went along with a conspiracy formed by others, we don't know. But now that the deed was done, Alexius had no choice but to get on with the business of government. His first act was to disband the army and head back to Constantinople. His wife had suppressed an attempt to elect a new Vasilevs in his absence, and he now had to show his face to the crowds. Despite some disquiet about his fratricidal behaviour, the new emperor was accepted by the people, in part because Alexius handed out very generous gifts and privileges to a host of people once he was ensconced in the palace. The treasury was not really in a position to hand out gifts, given that half the empire's provinces were in revolt or in ruins. But what choice did he really have? Alexius had been installed by a coalition of aristocratic families, each of whom expected to benefit from the new regime. Still, after this latest round of handouts and the inevitable collapse of various deals which Isaac had made, Alexius found himself with even less breathing room than his brother had enjoyed. The situation in the Balkans was deteriorating quickly. Blinding Isaac essentially ended the alliance between Byzantium and Hungary. This was because Isaac was married to Margaret of Hungary, who was now shunted aside. King Bela had been willing to divide the Balkans between Hungarian and Roman spheres of influence, but now he was free to make whatever deals he liked with the Serbs and Bulgarians. Meanwhile, both of these powers began to strengthen their bids for independence. The Bulgarians installed garrisons in the forts south of the Hemus Mountains, in clearly Roman territory. They also began to mint their own coins and sought recognition for their new kingdom from the papacy. Over in Serbia, on taking the throne, Stephen II divorced his Byzantine wife, who just happened to be the new emperor's daughter, practically a declaration of war. The following year, 1196, a brief window of opportunity opened when both Peter and Arsen, the leaders of the new Bulgarian kingdom, died within a few months of each other. In the chaos that followed, the Byzantines were invited in by a Bulgarian noble named Ivanko. If the Roman army had been in good order, this would have been a real opportunity to dismantle the Bulgarian state. But the troops Alexius sent to the border refused to enter the mountain passes. The trauma of the last decade of defeats had destroyed morale. Ivanko had to abandon his position when the new Bulgarian Tsar, Kaloyan, got his act together. Alexius decided to appoint Ivanko as governor of Philippopolis, the city in northwestern Thrace, whose lands were being ravaged annually by the enemy. Meanwhile, further west, around the town of Strumitsa, North of Thessaloniki, the Romans had come to rely on a Vlack chieftain named Dobromir, who served as the governor there. For now, it seemed sensible to employ barbarians to fight other barbarians. It gave the emperor some time to consolidate his rule at the capital. But soon enough, both would challenge his authority. That autumn, more bad news arrived in the shape of an embassy from Nuremberg the son of Frederick Barbarossa, Henry VI was planning on taking another army to the Holy Land. In a fairly naked threat, the Holy Roman Emperor demanded 5,000 pounds of gold, or else he would march his army through Byzantine lands. Henry was the son that Barbarossa had written to during his stay in the Balkans, telling him about the ordeals the Byzantines were putting him through, and eventually ordering him to gather a fleet to attack Constantinople. Henry's perspective, then, was that the Romans owed his family. In fact, they owed them a crusade and should pay for the next one. Given the perilous state of the empire, Alexius felt he had no choice but to agree. He sent an embassy back which negotiated a reduction of the tribute to just 1,600 pounds of gold, but this would now need to be raised. And given that Alexius was barely meeting his expenses already, the only way to do this was to introduce a new tax. The last time a supplementary tax had been levied, the Bulgarian revolt had broken out, so Alexius decided to consult thoroughly before taking action. In a highly unusual move, Angelos Komnenos called for a representative assembly to gather together so that he could present the idea of a German tax to them. This parliament was a meeting of men from the Senate, the clergy and the guilds of Constantinople. That last part is significant and speaks to the power of local businessmen on the streets of the capital. As you can imagine, this talking shop quickly turned rancorous. Many people in Constantinople disliked the Latins particularly when they got involved in religious or political matters. They certainly had no interest in paying the money. Soon, insults and accusations rained down on the emperor himself. If your family ran the state better and didn't give away landed money to corrupt cronies, then maybe we'd all be better off, etc., etc. Alexius swiftly ended the meeting and searched for other ways of raising the money. In sheer desperation the emperor gave the order to have the tombs of his predecessors ransacked for treasure. His agents went to the mausoleums at the Church of the Holy Apostles and began grave robbing. The precious items that had been interred with Justinian, Heraclius and the rest of them were carefully picked out. As the story goes, the looters had just got to Constantine I's tomb when the cry went up that enough money had been collected. In a rare moment of good fortune for Byzantium, Henry fell ill and died in September 1197. The 7,000 pounds of silver which Alexius had gathered were now his to spend, and he would need every penny. Imperial authority continued to be challenged on every front. Predictably, the two Bulgarian strongmen who Alexius had given commands to cast off Roman authority... In 1199 and 1200, respectively. Though interestingly, neither threw in his lot with the Bulgarian kingdom, they simply saw an opportunity to become independent in the face of imperial impotence. One had to be defeated in battle after several years of campaigning, the other had to be lured to a peace conference and then arrested a show of bad faith that did nothing for Alexius' reputation, but which solved the immediate problem. Another Roman governor rebelled in the Rhodope Mountains in 1202, and Alexius had to march out to stop him. And with Thrace constantly under attack, the people of Greece increasingly felt cut off from imperial largesse. Around this time, one of the local governors, Leo Skouros, seized most of the Peloponnese for himself. The emperor would not have time to deal with him before the Fourth Crusade arrived. Going back to Bulgaria, the new Tsar, Kaloyan continued to strengthen his state during this period. In 1201, he captured the last Roman strongholds north of the Hemus Mountains, Constantia and Vana. These were Black Sea ports, allowing the Bulgarians to take over the trade heading north to the Danube and denying the Romans vital ports. Alexius Angelos Komnenos felt he had no choice but to offer recognition to the new Bulgarian state in exchange for peace. The endless raiding had caused nothing but misery, and since most of his time was taken up putting down rebels, he hardly had the wherewithal to conduct campaigns against the Bulgarians as well. The Romans were proposing a return to the situation which had prevailed in the ninth and 10th centuries. The border between the two realms would be the Hemus Mountains. The Byzantines would recognise the Bulgarian Tsar as an emperor, and his church as independent. Alexius offered his counterpart an imperial coronation if he came to Constantinople, and a patriarch for his church in Ternovo. But despite agreeing to peace, Kalyan did not accept the whole deal. Instead, he used it as a bargaining chip in his ongoing negotiations with the papacy. In a sure sign of the power imbalance between East and West, the Tsar felt that Acknowledgement from Rome was more likely to safeguard his kingdom than a deal with Constantinople. Pope Innocent III eventually agreed and recognised the new Bulgarian kingdom in 1204. Despite this switch, the Bulgarians continued to follow the Orthodox tradition. Over in Anatolia, the Romans benefited from the civil wars which the death of Kilijarslan II had unleashed. One of his sons, Kay Kusro, was in power in 1198 and led a nasty raid into Roman territory. But two years later, he turned up in Constantinople seeking asylum. His brother, Rukun al-Din, took over the realm, and Alexius managed to sign a peace treaty with him in 1200. Though only after the new sultan had lent troops to a Byzantine rebel who'd raided the Meander Valley. Alexius was forced to cross the waters and defeat the rebel in person in the autumn of 1200. So, as you can see, Coniates' initial slur against Alexius, that he was lazy, is far from true. The emperor continued to campaign every year, as his brother had done. It was just very hard to make any progress. The army's morale was low, the treasury was empty and new usurpers or rebels seemed to pop up every summer. Something had snapped between Manuel's death and Isaac's fall. The channels which kept the provinces and capital communicating and exchanging money and talent seemed to have become permanently clogged. It was a vicious cycle going round and round. Rebellion in one province would need to be put down, forcing the emperor to use the resources of the other provinces to pay the army. This caused resentment, which prompted another local actor to stop paying tax to the centre, and so the emperor had to saddle up and start all over again. The Romans had been forced out of Cilicia and Cyprus, the lands north of the Danube and most of the lands west of Thessalonica. Their control of what remained was constantly contested, just as their hold over the west coast of Anatolia was entirely dependent on the mood of the Turks. Even the Aegean islands were no longer safe. The piracy, which had been growing ever since Andronicus massacred the Latins, had failed to go away. Alexius had hoped to save money by refusing to pay the rest of the compensation which the Venetians were owed, but the Imperial Navy had been starved of funding since the loss of Cyprus and was completely incapable of combating the pirates. Treaties had to be arranged or reinforced with Venice, Genoa and Pisa, just to bring this illegal shipping down to a manageable level. Alexius does emerge with some credit simply by keeping the show on the road. He managed to meet each challenge as it arose, and kept the empire together during this seven-year period. The greatest threat he faced actually came from the aristocratic coalition, which had brought him to power in the first place. As you'll recall, it was a group of senior Comnenian aristocrats who were identified by Conniartes as the prime movers behind Alexius's elevation. These were families who had descended from Alexius Komnenos's close associates. They had survived Andronicus's purges but had felt left out of Isaac Angelos's regime. Alexius tried to conciliate them as best he could, but eventually he would have to make key decisions that would upset various members of the coalition. The crunch moment came when Alexius made a major announcement about the succession. Angelos Komnenos had no sons, only daughters. The men they married would obviously be in prime position to inherit the throne. In spring 1199, amidst lavish ceremonies at the Vlachianai Palace, his eldest daughter Irene married Alexius Palaiologos, an eligible aristocrat from a powerful family, while his younger daughter Anna married Theodore Lascaris, an excellent general. Both men were soon leading troops on the emperor's behalf. One of these two figures would most likely succeed Alexius. Both men were sensible choices, and the two families and their supporters were now thoroughly bonded to the regime. But of course, those who had been overlooked were now bitter and resentful. Up to this point, the court had been a reasonably happy place, since everyone could imagine that they would find favour with the new imperial couple. But now that the doors had been politely closed, the whispers began. The lid blew off the following summer. The catalyst was the arrest of a leading businessman named Kalamodios, on the charge that he hadn't paid his fair share to the treasury. A mundane matter in another century, but in 1200 AD, this was a serious business. Calamodios must have been one of those powerful men in the capital whose control of the streets frightened the nobility. Because once word went round that he'd been incarcerated, a ferocious crowd occupied the Hagia Sophia. They threatened the patriarch, who sent word to the palace and Calamodius was quickly released from prison. It was a frightening demonstration of the power of the people. Emboldened by this, the crowd turned on the praetorium itself a few days later. The prison governor was accused of corruption and chased out of town. Once the place had been looted and the inmates freed, the mobs stormed the palace precinct. They targeted the prison there as well, and attacked the Imperial Mosque. This had clearly become a political movement being directed against symbols of the imperial regime's authority. Alexius was away with the army, but his wife Euphrosine was alert to the danger. She anticipated that these attacks would be followed by the elevation of a new emperor in the Hagia Sophia, following the precedent set by Isaac's coronation 15 years earlier. She dispatched the Varangian guard to occupy the cathedral church, and when the mob approached the building, they were angry to find their path blocked. Some pelted the imperial troops with stones, but those who tried to fight them were quickly disabused of the wisdom of that notion. The crowd's fervour eventually subsided, and everyone slowly went home. No new emperor would be acclaimed today. Clearly, though, the crowds had someone in mind, and most likely this man had been working with Calamodius and the other mob bosses over the past week. That man would reveal himself in the small hours of the morning. John Aksuk Komnenos, also known as John the Fat, arrived at the Ahia Sophia in the darkness of the night, occupied the building and sent word to his supporters to get out of bed and come running. As you know, John Komninos, the emperor, had a best friend of Turkic origin called John Aksuk. Aksuk's son had married Komninos' granddaughter, and their offspring was John the Fat. John was therefore the great-grandson of John Komninos, the emperor. This gave him a more prestigious lineage than either of the Angelos brothers, and doubtless men had been whispering in his ear for some time that he should make a bid for the throne. Once the imperial marriages were announced, it was clear that Aksuk was not going to rise any higher, and so he made alternative arrangements. Whether he'd been plotting for a long time, or simply jumped on the bandwagon unleashed by Calamodius's arrest, we don't know. But it seems likely the crowds were attempting to acclaim him as emperor, and that when that attempt failed, his days were numbered. Surely the authorities would have heard who the crowds were surging towards the Archia Sophia in support of. Surely imperial troops would be knocking on his door the next morning. So he had little choice but to break into the Ahia Sophia that night and hope for the best. His gamble seemed to pay off. Many people did flock to acclaim him, and he was crowned at the altar by a priest, though not by the patriarch who was wisely hiding in the bowels of the building. Emboldened by their success, the mob ran through the Hippodrome and broke down the gates there that led into the palace. Aksuk's supporters occupied the heart of the complex, seizing the treasury, the throne room, and the imperial apartments, but crucially, they avoided the main gates where the Varangian barracks were located. This allowed the axe-wielding northerners to make contact with the Empress, who was safely with the rest of the court, at the Vlachianai palace on the other side of the city. The two sides had to send messengers by boat since the Messi was now being held by the crowd. Euphrosine dispatched more troops who sailed down the Golden Horn, bypassing the mob and linking up with the Varangians at the foot of the palace. The soldiers methodically worked their way through the corridors of power, driving John the Fat's supporters out and killing the usurper. Aksuk's head was posted outside the palace to indicate that the rebellion was over. The coup of John the Fat made a huge impression on contemporary writers who've left us several accounts. It was a dramatic incident, yes, and it was a success story of sorts for the sitting regime. But perhaps the real reason it caused such a stir is how close the government came to being overthrown by their own citizens. This wasn't an aristocratic changing of the guard, or an imperial army being turned on the capital. This was ordinary workers, guildsmen, and the poor, very nearly overturning the established order. The Roman Empire was becoming almost ungovernable. That is the story of Alexius Angelos Comninos' reign up to the arrival of the Fourth Crusade. Despite the bleak picture I've presented, he was still in charge of the government. He had secured peace with the Bulgarians, and he had successfully faced down every rebellion that came his way. None of these threats was yet existential. It was only the arrival of a large foreign army at this time of intense vulnerability that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Next time, that is the story I will be telling. It is a tragedy of epic proportions, and despite the sadness, you won't want to miss it. See you then.